hopefully your Valentine's was uh, better than that. Um, I kind of think no Valentine's would have been better than that uh, at all, but uh, it is Valentine's Day weekend. Uh, Again, if you were trying to forget that, sorry to bring it up again. We gave you chocolates on the way in and uh, celebrated with some wonderful Valentine messages, Uh, so so hopefully that helps. We we have been talking about uh, family and the idea of no ordinary family the last two weeks, uh, we talked about our immediate family, our biological family, the people who share our last name, live in the house with us, uh, that, that relational family. We want to talk about family in a different way uh, for this morning. Uh, the idea that, that we are family. This is a family. We, we are a family. God describes His people, the church... His followers, God describes us very often in family terms, in relational terms, that we are a family, a, a family that is multi-ethnic and multicultural, multiracial, multilingual, stretches around the world, it stretches for generations past and generations future. God says that we are a family and He is our Father. Um, here on earth, our biological families, we all have imperfect fathers. We have fathers that don't fully demonstrate the character of God, the love of God, the, the patience of God, the consistency of God, the commitment of God. We all had imperfect fathers. If you're a father this morning like I am, you are an imperfect father. We're a not quite perfect example of who God is, uh, and, and some fathers are far more imperfect than others, and I don't mean that jokingly, I, I mean honestly, there, there are fathers that have left wounds, uh, maybe that was your experience, scars from your childhood, maybe emotionally, maybe, maybe even physically, uh, there are some really terrible examples of fathers in this world, God is not that, God is a perfect father, Uh, God is everything that a father should be. He is not someone who would abandon us, not someone who would abuse us. He's not an inattentive father. He's not a distant father. He's not going to walk out on us as a father. He is the perfect father. And, And those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are his children. That's how we're described in the Bible, and how I debated about opening this can of worms, but um, we're here, so we'll step into it anyway. So, sometimes we speak of the children of God in terms of everybody in the whole wide world. Right? And, and we say things, uh, people will say things like, well, we're all God's children. Right? Well, we, we're all children of God. And I know what we're saying. In a sense, that's true. In the sense of God created all of us, like we all owe our existence, we owe our origin to God. So there is a sense that that's true. We all bear the image of God. The Bible tells us every single human being that's ever been born or ever will be born bears the image of God. We share some of the characteristics with God. We have intellect, we can reason, we can... We can use our will and make choices between A 
are be. We share many of the characteristics of God. Every single human being that has ever been born or will ever be born is eternally valuable. There's an intrinsic value, not, not, not because they can do certain things or they have certain talents or they contribute in some certain way to society, simply because we're human and we bear the image of God. We are valuable and we should treat every person as if they have that value because they do. This is one of the reasons injustice against any human being is so wrong because we were all created in the image of God. And so a lot of times we say, well, we're all children of God. And if that's what we mean, we all originated with God, we owe our existence to God, we bear the image of God, then there's a part of that that certainly is true. The Bible, though, doesn't use family language in that way. When the Bible talks about the children of God, when the Bible talks about God's children, that's not really what the Bible's talking about. The Bible's very specific in the way it uses this phrase that the children of God are those who have come into relationship with their Heavenly Father by faith in His Son who lived and died and rose again. That's how the Bible refers to the children of God. So you are a child of God in the way that the Bible uses that phrase if you have put your faith in Christ, if, if, if you have stepped into the family of God. The Bible is, even uses adoption language frequently when it talks about our relationship to God. Adoption language in the sense that we weren't in God's family at one time, and something changed, and we were placed into the family of God. We were adopted by God into God's family. We had a whole new beginning. We had a whole new start, and our name changed, and our, and our destiny changed, and our future changed, and our past was taken away. We had a whole new start as children of God God is our Father. Uh, Romans 8 is one of the places where Paul uses this language. Uh, let me read verses 14 through 17 in Romans uh, chapter 8 from the New Testament. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. Paul has been making the case of what it looks like to live according to God's Spirit. We come into a relationship with God, we receive God's Spirit... What does it look like if you're living that out, if you're guided by the Spirit, if you're controlled by the Spirit? The Spirit is within you. Well, those who are led by the Spirit, those are the ones who are the children of God. They're in God's family. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. In other words, you're not slave to your past and, and sin and disobedience that came before this moment of adoption so that you live in fear again. Rather... The spirit that you received brought about your adoption to sonship or daughtership, adoption to be a child of God, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. There's this change that takes place when we put our faith in Christ 
God adopts us into his family. We receive all of the benefits, all of the riches, all of the goodness, both now and eternally, of being a child of God. We weren't that at one time. God saw us, brought us into his family, and we became his son, his daughter, his child. Now, Paul is most likely drawing on the illustration of Roman adoptions, because adoptions really weren't common at all among Jewish people, among the Israelites, God's people we sometimes call them, uh, because God had a whole different system for caring for orphans, and, and God expected his, his nation of Israel to honor his expectations there. But, but Paul reaches over to the Roman world because adoption was somewhat common in the Roman world. It was, it, it was very different from our idea of adoption, though. Roman adoptions weren't so much an act of compassion. Um, it, it wasn't an act of caring for the least of these. Um, it, it wasn't because someone wanted to extend love to someone. All great reasons, meaningful reasons to adopt today. In Rome, adults were adopted more so than children, and they were adopted to carry on the name and the estate, the heritage of the father. Sometimes uh, a man would not have any sons, like me, right? All girls, 2,000 years ago, uh, uh, we know this is a terrible thing to say now, but 2,000 years ago, a daughter could not take over the estate of her father. She could not be the direct heir. Terrible, we're glad things have changed. I'm glad things have changed. We're all glad things have changed. 2,000 years ago, things hadn't changed, right? Only a son could be in that position. And if you were a father and you wanted to protect all that you had amassed, it, it, even emperors did this. If you wanted to protect the throne, if you wanted to have control over who would assume the throne when you died and you didn't have any sons or you didn't have any sons that you trusted, you could adopt someone that you chose and put them in the exact same position as one of your kids and they would become the heir then to everything that you had. They would inherit all of your resources. They would inherit your throne if you, were the, if you were the emperor. And everything about your past was canceled. Your debts were canceled. You no longer owed anything that you once owed. That's gone. Your name changed. You were no longer a part of that other family. You were now completely a part of this new family that you had been adopted into. And Paul says, this is what God has done for us. It's not a perfect analogy, but, but it's a good analogy. He's talking to a Jewish audience. He says, just think about the Romans, the way they just choose somebody to be their heir. That's what God did for you. God looked at you and knew you and loved you and wanted you to bear his name. And not only bear his name, but to inherit all of the righteousness and goodness, just as Jesus, the Son of God, would. That you would be in that place. You would be a son, a daughter, a child of God. Now, here's something else interesting about Roman adoptions. If you decided to adopt, if you decided to put somebody in that position in your family, 
you couldn't unadopt them. You couldn't unadopt them. There were cases where you could disown a biological child, right? Some of you want to know about that, don't you? Now, there were cases, 2000, there were cases you could disown a biological child. If you chose a child, if you said, I want this child to bear my name, represent me, you could never unadopt that child. Adoption was permanent. I think Paul's implying that here. God looked at you, wanted you to bear his name as well as his image, to demonstrate his character to the, to the world. He wanted to put his blessings and riches on you, and he's never going to take that back. He's never going to unadopt you. He's never going to kick you out. You are his son. You are his daughter forever and ever and ever. Once you've come into relationship with God, you're in the family. And it's a personalized, it's not just a legal idea. Paul says, we cry, Abba, Father. That was a, a personal term for Father. You, you've entered into a personal relationship now with your Creator. He's your dad. Now, obviously, the implication of that is if he's your dad and he's my dad, then we're related now. If we share the same father, then we're family, right? That makes sense. If we share the same father, we're family. And if you've been adopted into this family, and you have this personal relationship with God, and I've been adopted into that same family, we're related. The family's getting bigger. Now, it's not just me and God. It's us. I think when the Bible uses this language... It's, it's not just a metaphor. It's not just an illustration. We really are family. We're not a picture. Family's not a picture of who we are. It's not an illustration of who. It's not a metaphor. We, God is our father. He's my father. And if he's your father, we are family. We're not like family. We're not sort of family. We're not a picture of a family. We are family. Family, And this is the way the New Testament talks about us as family. A couple of quick references. Paul writes, do you not know, brothers and sisters, family, brothers, do you not know, brothers and sisters, the law is authority over someone only as long as that person lives? Another time, I appeal to you. He's talking to a local church, talking to a church. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters. Family language. We have the same father, so we're family. Philippians 1. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This, this was common language throughout the New Testament. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Family language. Now, some of us, that immediately triggers uh, our church upbringing. Because some of us have a church tradition, history, where people were called brother so-and-so, right? Sister so-and-so. Brother. When I was in my 20s, I was fresh out of seminary. First church I served full-time, first church out of seminary, was in uh, northeast Florida, and I was Brother Ken. And everybody called me Brother Ken. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I remember this. On my check envelope, 
they like typed it up in the, in the office back then. There was no direct deposit. They would put it in an envelope, and she would put broken, which looked like broken. Every time I look at my, like, get the, broken. What is this? Broken. That was me, right? And I'm in my 20s. I don't know what your experience was with that whole language sort of thing. It just always felt awkward to me. And it doesn't to everybody, but it just kind of feels odd and a little ostentatious and a little weird. And, and I knew, I, I still talk to some of those same people. You know what they call me? Brother Ken. That's right. They, they still, and I knew it was, it was love and it was respect and, and it, it was family language. It just always felt kind of weird. Um, and and if, if that's your thing, that's fine. Don't call me Brother Ken. But it, 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 I, if you grew up in that, that, that that's totally fine. I, I think one of the reasons it, felt, it feels weird to me is I have two younger sisters. They would want me to emphasize the word younger. Right? I have two younger sisters, Kathy and Christy. I don't call either one of them Sister Kathy. But that's just not family. I don't know about your family. Maybe you do. Sister Christy, I don't, I, sometimes I call them sis, usually I call them Kathy, Christy, right? I, I've never ever called my sisters Sister Kathy or Sister Christy, that's not, that doesn't feel like normal family language to me, but we, we do that often in the church, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Here's my concern though, in the church, we sometimes adopt language that's biblical or sounds biblical or we get it out of the Bible. Sometimes we adopt language, but not necessarily the intent of the Bible. Like we use that language, but Paul's intent, I don't think, was to give us something to call each other. Paul's intent by referring to us as brothers and sisters was not to tell us you should call him Brother Ken or you should call her sister so-and-so. His intent was to say, no, you should really treat each other that way. You, you should act that way. I, th- I think if Paul were here, he'd say, I don't care what you call each other. Call each other brother, say, call each other whatever you want. I don't really care. I wasn't giving you an idea of what to call each other. I was trying to help you know how to treat each other because you're family. That's your brother you're sitting next to. That's your, your sister you're, you're sitting next to. And when you relate to them, when you think of them, when you, when you look at them, I want you to treat them that way. Paul, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him or encourage him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Nowhere does Paul command us to call each other any certain things. But he does say, I want you to treat each other a certain way. I want you to relate to each other a certain way. You see, family is more about how we treat each other than what we call each other. I, I could call my sisters Sister Kathy and Sister Christy all the time. They don't care. They just want me to treat them like I'm their brother, like I'm their big brother. And when they need to talk to their big brother, they want to be able to talk to their big brother. And when they need help or advice or they're hurting, 
They want to know their big brother's there. And it doesn't matter what I call them. What matters is that I'm actually their brother, and I actually act like their brother. The, uh, the, the, the people of God, the children of God, it, it doesn't really matter what we call each other. Are we brothers to each other? Are we sisters to each other? Paul makes this wonderful argument. He says, um, you, you're going to sometimes have disagreements and, and, and when you disagree with somebody that's older than you, if you disagree with a man that's older than you, don't be harsh and cynical and sarcastic. Handle that situation. Speak to that person that's older than you like you would speak to your own father if you really loved your father. Or, or maybe think of it this way. Speak to that person the way you would want somebody else to speak to your father that you loved. Like if somebody else had a disagreement with your father and they went to him and they wanted to have a conversation, how would you want somebody else to speak to your father in that moment? That's how you're supposed to speak to one another. Like you would want somebody to speak to your sister. I have two sisters. They're not perfect. People have disagreements there. But, but I would want people to speak to my sisters with grace and compassion. I, I would want a certain tone directed at my sisters. Paul's saying, this is the way we're to interact with one another. Like We're, we're not going to be perfect at it. We're going to have disagreements because that's what families do, right? Families have challenges and, and, and we don't always see eye to eye. And sometimes we get it really wrong and sometimes I have to call my sister and say, I'm really sorry. I was tired. I overreacted. I said things I didn't mean. I'm so sorry. Like families do that sort of thing. We're going to have those times. But most of the time, our goal is that we would interact to, with one another like family, right? We don't, we don't just use family language. We actually treat each other like family. We care about each other like family. We show up for one another like family. We listen to one another like family. And, and, and that will take some effort on our part. And that will take some effort on our part. Like, in order to feel connected to the family, you have to actually spend time with the family. We all have extended family. And we have some family we're really close to. And we have some family we barely know, right? And there are probably a lot of dynamics, but one of the key dynamics between the two is which one we spend the most time with. Right? Which one we live closest to. Which ones we interact the most with. I mention often we have family reunion uh, on my mom's side every summer. And I know cousins way down the line. I'm close to cousins way down the line. Aunts and uncles way down the line. Because we regularly get together and I get to know them. We regularly have conversation. We regularly bring our lives together so that we can be close. This is also true in the family of God. 
the degree to which we operate as a family, the connection that we feel as a family is dependent in some ways on how much time we spend together. Whether being with the family really is a priority. Getting to know the family really is a priority or not. We started the service with that video, don't give up. Don't give up meeting together. It's taken from the book of Hebrews Where the author says, let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching, encouraging one another. Don't give up meeting together. Don't don't give up getting to know the family. Don't give up building relationships with cousins down the line that you just met, that you just encountered. Don't give up. Meeting together because we're a, we're a family. And the way to know each other is, is to be together. Now, uh, another thing about family. In a healthy family, no one becomes the center of the family. Right? No one becomes the center of the family. We all work towards the health of the family. If you have kids, if you've raised kids, you know there was a point at which You try to train your child, you're not the center of this family. You're part of the family, and we love you, and we want you in the family. We're never going to kick you out of the family. You're just not the center of the family. We're all a family together, and everybody contributes to the family. So they get to a certain age, and you take them in the room, and you say, this is how you clean up your room, because you're part of the family. They get a little bit older. This is how you clear the dishes from the table because you're part of the family. You're not center of the family. You're part of the family. And we all do what's best for the family. This is how you load the dishwasher. This is how you unload the dishwasher. This is some things you do in the yard. Why? Because you're part of the family. You're, you're not the center of the family. You're part of the family. And so as, as part of the family, you contribute to the family. None of us want to be the spoiled kid of the family that thinks everything is about them, right? That think everything is for them. Now, we're part of this huge family, and part of being in this huge family is to ask, what, what, what can I do for the family? How, how do I serve the family? How, how am I a part of the family? Hopefully when you come on Sunday mornings, when you, when you come to church, you receive a lot. I mean, hopefully God speaks to you. Hopefully the worship speaks to you as, our, as Zach and the worship band lead us. Hopefully the prayers minister to you. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the coffee. Uh, hopefully you're well taken care of. But being in the family isn't showing up at the house and expecting everything to be done for me. It's not showing up at the house and expecting everyone to adjust to me. It's showing up at the house and saying, hey, I'm part of the family. What can I do? How can I be a part? I'm not here just to receive. I'm here to contribute to the family. Now, a part of that is that in a family, all of the members have to take the initiative to care for one another. They have to take the initiative to reach out 
not just to get to know brothers and sisters, connect to brothers and sisters, but to ask, what can I do for my brothers and sisters? Like, how can I care for my brothers and sisters in the family? What, what initiative should I take to make sure everybody feels like they're part of the family? We have to, we have to take the initiative. Sometimes we can think of the family of God or our church as if it's um, some entity, like some amorphous entity, the church. Um, but but we, we think about your family. Your family's not this organization, right, with, with, with a, a logo. Your family is just made up of all the individuals in your family. And the personality of your family, the, the characteristics of your family are determined by all the people in the family. Church is the same way. Church is not just an entity, just an, an amorphous organization. It's, it's journey or it's First Baptist whatever or, or Grace Chapel whatever. It's them Church is, the fam- church is the individuals in the family. It's all of us. If we want our church to be certain things, it will be certain things because the individuals in that church are doing those things, are those things. And so, so if we say, we want our church to be a caring church, great. That means that the individual family members have to take the initiative to care for one another. We want our church to be a loving church. I agree. But... Our church isn't that. The question is, are the individual members that? We want our church to, to reach people for Jesus. Great. Me too. That's, that's, that's what we want to do. What that means is the individual family members are taking the initiative to share their faith, invite people, have spiritual conversations with people, I mean, the family is made up of just the individual people, not, not just an ordinary family, an empowered, spirit-led family of individuals who meet together regularly and become all the things that God wants His children to become. As you know, we've talked about some. We, we live in a, a fragmented society. Uh, and I'm not being critical, but pretty much all technology now leads us into more isolation, not into more community, not into more relationship. It leads us into more isolation. Um, we, we can shop online, right? Yay, Amazon Prime. Comes right to the door. Uh, the, the delivery person doesn't even ask me to come sign. I can watch from inside as they drop it at the front door and leave and never speak to them. Grocery shopping, I can fill it out online. I can pull into the space. They'll load it in the back. I can pull out. And, And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I'm not saying any of that's bad. I'm saying that technology... is leading us into more fragmented, individualistic experiences in our life. We shop online. Listen to music online, we go to church online, right? More individualist, fragmented, isolated. Maybe 
That's why the writer of Hebrews was inspired by God to say, don't give up meeting together all the more as time passes, is basically what he says. As you see the day approach, in other words, as you get closer and closer to the day Jesus is going to come back, this is going to be even more important. Maybe that's part of why God inspired him to say that is because the more time passes, the more individualistic we become, the more fragmented we become. As time goes on, you've really got to commit to being in the family, to being a part of the family, to joining with the family, to seeing each other as brothers and sisters that I need to get to know, that I need to care for, that I need to take the initiative and having a conversation with, to finding out how I can care for my brothers and sisters. Jesus left us um, with a meal. Right? That's another thing families do together. Right? They eat. Jesus left us with a meal that would remind us of our adoption, right? remind us that because of Jesus, we're in the family but that we would eat this meal together and it would remind us of the family. Uh, some of you saw on social media, I bought some Girl Scout cookies yesterday. Right. Toffee-tastic, gluten-free for my wife. Samoas. Thin mints. I have another box of thin mints at home. <laughs> One sleeve in the freezer. This is a regular thing that happens, right? This is a regular occurrence that reminds us of something really, really good, right? I mean, if you love Girl Scout cookies, this is the time of year you're reminded. Ooh, this is so good. This is so good. Taste and eat. Right? Share this. Put it in the freezer. You're going to love this. Taste and eat. It's part of what this is. It's a regular reminder that God has called us into something that's really, really good. Really, really good. When lived out the way he envisioned the family of God, it's really, really good. Because of Jesus' sacrifice and death and resurrection, our faith allowed God to adopt us into his family, to make us heirs of his, and to give us brothers and sisters. And that would be good. That would be good. So we're going to come around the table as we end today. We're going to come around the table. We're going to eat. We're going to experience the, the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Not just for our, my personal salvation, although that's wonderful news. Not just the fact that I've personally been adopted into the family of God, but on either side of you as you come to the table today, there's going to be brothers and sisters that were adopted into the family too. And we need each other. We need each other.
I know you can click online and go buy your groceries. I know you can click online and Amazon Prime will bring it to your doorstep. Well, you can't just click and have a family. God has given us what is good. And may we not, in our fragmented, hurried society, kind of breeze into the family gathering and breeze back out and not know anybody. Breeze into the family gathering and breeze back out every Sunday after Sunday and not get to know our brothers, not get to know our sisters, not treat older men as fathers and older women as mothers. May we be family. God, thank you for showing us that it matters. It matters that we are brothers and sisters. That we're not designed to experience the spiritual life alone, independent. But that when you called us into your family, adopted us into your family, you, you put all around us brothers and sisters. A lot of us shrink back from that. Don't want to be awkward. Don't want to be weird. People are suspicious. But we're, we're never going to experience family if we don't take some initiative. If we don't show up. If, if we don't extend a hand. If we don't learn a name. If we don't see a need and then meet that need because that's my sister that's my brother if we don't see a hurt and pray for that person because that's my brother, that's my sister we're family if we don't gain the skills of apologizing when we offend our brothers and our sisters help us to be a family here help us to be family we celebrate what unites us and it's you it's that you adopted us through the death and resurrection of Jesus into an eternal family that we can never be unadopted from never we are heirs of your righteousness and goodness and riches for now and for all eternity I pray it in Christ's name Amen. Come celebrate.